going to be in Luke chapter 16, and this is, uh, this is a continuation of where we've been in the, uh, in the text. And by the way, my thanks to Jack for sharing last week. Um, had, had just kind of a, a situation that sort of unfolded through the week and turned out to be a spontaneous gathering of our family on Sunday that we had, you know, it just sort of happened over a matter of a few days, and then I finally realized, oh, this is what's going to be happening. I really should be there. And uh, it was like shortly after that that our son, uh, Logan, no, not Logan, boy, my brain, Donovan. Donovan was heading down to Indianapolis to begin life in the real world. And uh, yes, I cried again. You know, it's what, it's what I tell my siblings these days, yet another reason to cry. Um, but it's just, you know, it was this awareness that, yeah, here, here, we're at another, here we're at another turning point, right? And I'm grateful for them. And thank you guys for allowing us to have the freedom to be able to just to share that together. I want to, and, and, and then Jeff, Jack for sharing last week. I, I did read, by the way, Jack, your notes um, and how you started out by saying I was going to, I was thinking I might want to duck the passage. <laughs> and I said, you know, Interestingly, I looked at that one and went, wow, that's going to be an interesting passage to teach from. But I want to remind us, part of what's happening, let's, let's remember the context, Luke 14, 15, and 16, Jesus in this entire context, all of this is happening over the period of what, what the Jewish people call Shabbat, over a 24-hour period in which they come together. And normally, this would be a festival a feast, sort of a weekly feast they would share together. They couldn't, they couldn't prepare food on that day. They had to have everything done and ready for that day. So, again, the best image in my brain is like Thanksgiving Day, right? You know, get everything ready because we are going to enjoy the day together. Now, Shabbat was also centered around the Scriptures. So they would sit and have meals, but they would also sit together and talk about what they believe to be food for their spirit, okay? And that scripture says, you know, your, your word, uh, the, these, the revealed word is like, a, is like food for me. So it, in that context, you would have the Jewish people, their family, their friends, their neighbors, they're gathered together, and they're sharing life. So this is why it makes sense when you look at Luke 14, 15, and 16. It either looks like Jesus just sat and started talking all dinner, or, or, there was a dialogue that was occurring, and Jesus seems intent on taking, and, and here he's in the leader of one of the Pharisees' homes, and it's there that some things begin to happen, like, you know, a week before, there was a woman doubled over who's healed on the Sabbath, and Jesus is saying, hey, there's a Sabbath, and there's a reason for it, and then in chapter uh, 14, there's this individual dropsy who's healed. And then you begin to see Jesus confronting these images that are in their minds. And literally, what he's doing is he's sort of taking their view of God and turning it upside down, right side up, actually, is what he's doing. He's inviting them to see that all of the Old Testament prophets and the law were intended to lead them to something. And Jesus, in fact, clarifies that. Luke records it. There's a rich young ruler that comes and says, hey, what do I need to be saved in chapter 18? And he says, oh, here, 
you know, what's, what's, the, what's written in the law? He said, oh, man, I've done it all. And he said, here, here, here's what, it, what it's about. It's really about love for God and love for one another. On these hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus is, is in story after story attempting to pull back the veil and invite them to see something differently. That this isn't about a form of how you sort of figure out how you relate to God and manage Him, but that God's invitation has always been about something from the heart. Lived out love for God and love for one another. So I want to begin there. By the way, last week's uh, parable that Jack was sharing out of was, it, it begins with the exact same phrase. And this is because uh, God's people at that point had come to this place where they said, you know what, to be wealthy and rich is to have the favor of God. And, you know, Jack rightly pointed out last week, actually what Jesus is trying to invite us to see is that it was never about what we have. It's always been God's. And so this begins with the almost exact same phrase. Luke 16, verse 19. I'm going to read this out of the voice translation again because I just, I like it. It's a little bit fresher. If you want to follow in your translation, that's fine. Um, there was a rich man who had everything. Purple clothing of fine quality and high fashion, gourmet meals every day in a large house. He had it. Just outside his front gate lay this poor homeless fellow named Lazarus. Lazarus was covered in ugly skin lesions. He was so hungry he wished he could scavenge uh, scraps from the rich man's trash. Dogs would come and lick the sores on his skin. The poor fellow died and was carried on the arms of the heavenly messengers to embrace Abraham. Then the rich man fellow died and was buried and found himself in the place of the dead. In his torment, he looked up, and off in the distance, he saw Abraham with Lazarus in his, in his embrace. He shouted, Father Abraham, please show mercy on me. Would you send that beggar Lazarus to dip his fingertip into the water and cool my tongue? These flames are hot, and I'm in agony. But Abraham said, Son, you seem to be forgetting something. Your life was so full and overflowing with comforts and pleasures, and the life of Lazarus was just as full with suffering and pain. Now is his time of comfort, and now is your time of agony. Beside a great canyon separates you and us. No matter, nobody can cross from our side to yours and from your side to ours. Please, Father Abraham, I beg you, the formerly rich man continued, send Lazarus to my father's house and I have five brothers there, and they're on the same path I was on. If Lazarus warns them, they'll choose another path and won't end up in torment here. But Abraham said, why send Lazarus? You already had the law of Moses and the writings of the prophet to instruct you. Let your brothers hear them. No, Father Abraham said, they, they, they're ignoring the law and the prophets. But if you send someone back from the dead, then they'd sure listen for sure. Then they change their way of life. Abraham answered, if you're not listening to Moses and the prophets, that won't, they won't be convinced even if someone comes back from the dead. There was a rich man. <clears throat> you know, in the news, I, I mentioned the, the queen's funeral. There was something that showed up in the news this last week, actually wound up 
in like, I don't know, second or third page, some, whatever kind of reference you would have in your, you know. I happened to catch it on one of the internet feeds, but um, there were two individuals who were mega lottery winners in Illinois, and they stepped forward, and they had won one of the largest lotteries ever recorded in American history, $1.3 billion. That's a lot of dollars. And they remain anonymous, but it was reported that they were, quote, over the moon, having chosen to take a lump sum payment after taxes. And for each of them, that's going to wind up being somewhere around $250 million apiece. And oh, how our imaginations can begin to run when we think about something like that. I know I've referenced this kind of thing before, and that's because I'm just telling on myself, okay? It's the truth. It's like, you know, I would never, like, put a bunch of money in the lottery hoping to win it. But if I did, see, most of us have thoughts or our imagination about what would life be like. And, and the, the truth is, those imaginations normally fall into the categories of good and better. Right? Um, at least a better vehicle. At least a little something I could do a little bit better with this. Intriguingly, though, watch this. Did you know that, I mean, just, you, you don't have to look hard to find this. 70% of all lottery winners lose or spend all of their winnings in the first three to five years. And a large percentage of those go completely bankrupt. Worse are the testimonies of many who say, many who say, it was the worst thing that ever happened to them. One man saying he believed it to be the cause of his wife and his daughter's suicide. Yet the promise of riches doesn't just drive the lottery, but it drives things like, you know, those scammers that take advantage of, of the vulnerable men and women who pick up the phone with the illusion that somehow good and better is right around the corner. Instant riches. It'll change everything. And see, the, the truth is, and the, the reason I'm, I'm pointing to that is this. The truth is that often instant riches, the only thing they do is they pull back the veil to reveal the longings and the motivations of the heart. What's actually controlling the heart. Uh, you see, uh, you know, I may not have a whole bunch, but I, it, it, as long as I don't have a lot, I, I don't have to, you know, I can kind of hide what's really driving my heart. Jesus, in two of his parables, he's sitting with religious leaders who, by the way, uh, justified themselves in the sight of God because, well, let's see this. Let's, let's make sure we have the right context. In Luke 16, um, right after that last parable, and Jesus had been sharing his heart, and this was the reaction. 
in verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money and were listening to all these things were scoffing at Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts that the things that are highly esteemed among men are detestable in the sight of God. So Jesus, again, why is he telling these stories? He's telling these stories to begin to pull back the veil to invite uh, men and women to this reality that we like to, you know, something we describe as repentance, to look at what's motivating the heart. So he begins with that parable of the rich man, and then he talks about these Pharisees in, a, in their house where they saw wealth as the visible sign of God's favor and poverty and sickness was seen as a punishment from God. And so Jesus' point is the arrival of the kingdom is turning all your values around. It's, it's about valuing what God values. And, and, you know, remember that at the very end, there, there's three parables told, told in Luke 15, the, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. You guys remember how the parable of the, the prodigal ends? Interestingly, it, you've got this prodigal who squandered his wealth. He comes back to the father who is, you know, Jesus telling his parable. That is a portrayal of God's heart, right? Right? And so this son who squandered everything is restored. And, and is, the father says, my son was dead and has come to life. And yet the very final scene of the parable We find the older brother outside of the house in resentment and anger. Not because the father said, you can't get back in the house. He's inviting them back into the house, right? But he's exiled himself because he's unconverted to the way of the father's heart. Please, you as we get these parables, you see the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. The, the father who searches for us. And then we have this parable of the, of the prodigal son. See, the, these stories are intended to confront the heart as an invitation to repent. So in this text here, these leaders are scoffing Jesus because they were attempting to be masters of the law and the prophets through self-interest, and yet they were ignoring the heart of God. Jesus is saying, you can't do that. You're choosing to ignore the message of the law, which adds up to this. Love God and love your neighbor. Now, I want to say this early on. I'm indebted to Pastor Brian Zahn for several thoughts that I want to share this morning, just because I believe he's, he has a, a good handle so I'm going to share several of his quotes. Uh, he's written books like Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God and his latest book, uh, Beauty Will Save the World. Awesome. Uh, just, he just has a good, uh, good handle on communicating the heart of God. But one of the things that Brian Zahn says about Luke 16 is this. This parable is not, please catch this, it is not a voyeur's view into the afterlife. This isn't teaching about hell or heaven. But how easy 
It is to miss the arrival of the kingdom of God if we overlook the Lazaruses that are all around us. To read the parable of Luke 16 with a focus on wealth or on the afterlife is to miss Jesus' invitation. His invitation was to pull back the veil of the heart that we live in anything and if we live from anything other than the love of God is to miss the kingdom of God. If we take Jesus seriously as a teacher, we must never think the gospel is a means by which we can ignore God, scorn suffering, mock the poor, and have everything turn out all right. Listen to this great line. If you want to know how to find hell, follow the path of the rich man, and you'll get there. See, the good news of Jesus' words to us today is this. His kingdom, remember Psalm 23? It's an open table of abundance. That's the psalmist talks about it. John sees this in the Revelation. This incredible, beautiful table of abundance given freely to those who choose to surrender their hearts to the love of God and to one another. That, beloved, is the kingdom. Luke 16, there was a rich man. I, I want to just point to a few things in the text and then, and then point to a couple of ways I think that the Lord might be saying some things to us. One is this. You know, Jesus tells these parables, and in Luke 16, in this parable, the rich man in Lazarus, he only gives one of the main characters a name. It's the poor man. The rich man remains nameless. Lazarus, by the way, is a shortened form of the word Eleazar, which means God's helps. So in the setup of this story, Jesus tells a story about this rich man who comes to his home and there's a gate, a barrier between this poor man sitting at his gate and how he's living. He's wearing expensive clothes. Lazarus is wearing sores. The rich man ignores the naked and the hungry man sitting right there before his gate. He passes through that gate every day on his way to a great feast. Naked, sick, hungry. Here's the point. Lazarus is invisible to the rich man. He can't even see him. You know, this is fascinating, and, and this is the heart of the problem. It, I've seen this played out in many, I mean, I've, I've literally watched this happen in, my, in front of me. I remember the first time I was in New York City as a young man many, many years ago. Uh, but even then, these very, very wealthy individuals were known to have never actually walked on the streets of the city because they didn't want to be bothered with it. They would be flown in on helicopters to the top of their office building so they didn't have to see what was occurring in the streets. I remember as a young Midwesterner dude not living in a big city, it was eye-opening. The need that is everywhere, and there's a certain sense in which some people have, have not only grown accustomed to it, but will grow dull to it 
and have to shut something off. In, in the streets of Calcutta, in Delhi, in Port-au-Prince, I mean, I could, Mexico City, I, many of the cities that I've had the privilege of walking in, I've literally watched incredibly wealthy individuals walk and simply, they, they, they've learned the art, I don't want to call it an art, a skill, it's not a good skill, of just not even seeing suffering in front of them. That's a problem. When humanity is invisible to the human heart, that's a problem. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. And, and so both men die. Suddenly their situations are reversed. Lazarus is in, the Abra- is in the bosom of Abraham on his lap, cared for by the angels, the rich man, tormented in Hades. Now, by the way, we're going to talk about that here for, for just, just a moment. You know, Jesus uses the term Hades, this place after death, because intriguingly, the rich man can see Lazarus from a distance. But he didn't see him before, did he? Now, several weeks ago, and I, I don't know when it was. I, I mean, I, sometimes these thoughts hit me at random. You know, if I'm getting ready in the morning, this, this thought hit me. I think Denise and I were actually out shopping somewhere. Might have been Costco run or something like that. And this, oh, it might have been a Sam's run. That might have been it. Because, you know, when, you have to, when you're walking by those dudes and dudettes that say, Hi. And you're like, oh, please, no, I don't want to say no to you. (laughs) You know, just don't look at them, don't look at them, don't look at them. And so uh, I think it was, I think it was one of those runs that I I really felt like I had a word that got stuck in my heart. And this word was making eye contact to the point that I I wrote it down several weeks ago, and I've been writing it daily on my to-do list, making eye contact. Because I think that's something of what Jesus, how he lived, the posture that he lived from, right? He saw men and women. And so I, I, don't, want to, I don't want this to sound like, I, like, you know, here's the latest skill and technique. But I think there's something theological about it is, my, is what I'm trying to get at. So, in fact, one individual says it this way. He said, before you can have compassion for people, you have to see them acknowledging their presence their needs and their gifts, and above all, their status as valuable in God's eyes. And I want to go on public record as saying, there's nobody that's taught me this better than my wife. I know I'm going to embarrass just a little bit, but no matter where we have been, that somehow she has the grace to be able to, to look at someone in the eye. Least to the it doesn't matter to and and communicate worth and value, beloved. This rich man, you know, it's curious. He's in Hades and now he knows his name. He knew his name. This is what Jesus is pointing out. You actually knew who that was, and you shut something off. 
You didn't value him as a beloved child of God. So even when he's in torment, he's not calling to Lazarus, but Abraham. Abraham, now watch this. There's a little level of arrogance that Jesus is alluding to. The rich man is saying, Abraham, can you get him to get something for me? Because likely the rich man felt like he had a pretty good grasp of religious truth. So he's attempting to control the narrative, even in Hades, even here. He's unable to see Lazarus as an equal partner in grace. That's the heart of the issue. Can I look at someone and see them as a partner in grace? Not just as somebody to see, we, we get, we can, I'll talk about this here in a minute, but we can even get into these situations where we, where we maybe even feel guilty about our abundance, you know, and we, we kind of get this pat on the head posture. We're like, here, let me help you out with a little bit. The posture of Jesus is to see an individual as an equal partner in the grace of God. So even there in Hades, Lazarus is still invisible to this rich man. And so Jesus in this parable is unveiling the heart. The the issue here, beloved, is an invitation to repent. And in this case, to recognize heart issues. When something other than love controls the heart, we are the ones that are poor. Right? So, uh, verse 15 Luke 16, out of the voice, you've made your choice. Your ambition was to look out good in front of other people, not God, but God sees through to your hearts. He values things differently. The goals you and your peers are reaching for, God attests, or detests, excuse me. So there's a gate in life, a chasm or a canyon in Hades. Now, I alluded to this just a moment ago. I don't think Jesus is speaking that we need to, quote, do more for the, quote, less fortunate. Because if we're motivated by anything other than valuing an individual and living from love, we can even get goofy there because we need to hear Jesus' invitation. Am I considering what I'm doing as as a response to guilt or perceived excess? So I dole out my excess or my, you know, give out handouts and reinforcing at the same time the idea that somehow, wait a minute, I can even be in Hades and not see somebody. And that's true. It's ugly, but it's true. That person isn't, quote, just less fortunate. They're a loved, beloved child of God. See, Jesus said it another way. He said, you tied your mint and your cumin, and yet you missed the weight of your parts of the law, mercy, and justice. So Jesus' story here is about inviting us, who are you know, these, these men, religious leaders, who are committed to looking good in front of others, verse 14, but not looking at their hearts. Rich man Lazarus has a name, but he's made in the image of God. He has value. Everyone has valued, and they are beloved by God, and they're worthy. 
So if the good news of the kingdom is that there's an open table of abundance freely given to all, here are a few things of what I think this means. Number one, as a follower of Jesus, it means I cannot ignore Lazarus with impunity. The poor you'll always have in your midst. Well, that's true. And you know, I, I've seen actual ministries. Yeah, I just I'm just gonna say it. It's just candidly. I'm trying to be great. I'm trying to be nuanced and nice about it, but I've seen entire functions of ministries that seem to be more postured in trying to fix people than value them. Do you understand what I'm getting at? Okay. Now, I'm grateful for help, but I think we need to take some harder questions, a little harder census of the heart. Do I see the image of God? Can I proclaim their worth, their dignity? As I'm engaging with them, I had a good friend of mine who made this statement, and it's one that my wife and I have tried to rehearse through our lives. The poor do not need us as much as we need them. I can't afford to ignore Lazarus. And I can't pretend that I don't see him. So... What does it mean to make eye contact? Well, I'm not saying that every time you have to walk in and look that AT&T salesperson in the eyeball, but I, I do think St. Anthony the Great said it this way, our life and our death is with our neighbor. So here's, here's kind of what I, that is saying to me. When I look at this text, uh, I, I want to I see, okay, do the actions of my life have consequences in the next? Yes. But you know what? I think we need to stop with that lens. I, I, what I'd rather is, like, I, I want to participate in the kingdom of God now. That's what I believe Jesus' invitation is. So, the wonder of the kingdom of God is that it's, it, it could be revealed in my life now. So I want to live connected now and so that it would spill out of me now so that I begin to pray as I pray this prayer. These are some of the ways it begins to come out of me is this idea that the power of the resurrection is the power to recreate what was lost in the garden. Lord, you can recreate it. Ah, yes, even in my life, even right now, you can re recreate and restore. So the places where there are barriers and gates, Lord, I, I want to proclaim resurrection power in life. That the love of the power, of the, the love that is the power of the kingdom that's come to earth is present in me and that it can recreate what was lost in relationships, what was lost in the lives of those around me. That I have a vision that isn't just about seeing that person, but it's about, God, you're going to do something in my simple yes in their life. Is this making sense, what I'm trying to say? So it's more than just, you know, meeting a particular need. Yes, let's meet needs. But let's, let's believe for the mystery that God does in the resurrection, in our lives, and in the lives of those that we touch. Last thing is this. 
Um, I'm going to lean into a phrase, something here that Brian Zahn shared, but if we, if we must talk about hell from this passage, then let us come to the correct conclusion. You ready? Hell, beloved, is the inability to love other people. You see, you've heard me say this. I believe we begin to experience heaven and hell right now. So forget what, you know, what's it like out there somewhere else. I believe in heaven being revealed that the kingdom of God, righteousness, peace, and joy in my life now. Resurrection power now in my life. Guess what? That also means, conversely, that there are a lot of people who are living in literal hell. I've had, you know, a family member that, who turned to me and said, you know, it was one of my nieces said, you know, Uncle, I, I don't need you to preach to me about hell. I lived in it. Okay? It's, she, she was like, I've been there. Hell is the inability to love other people. Hell is the love of God wrongly received. Now, let me say this really slowly but clearly. Hell is not God's hatred of sinners. God has one single disposition towards sinners, love. Remember the parable of the prodigal. The elder brother's in self-exile, not because of the father, but because he's unwilling to surrender and allow his heart to be controlled by love. Hell is not God's hatred. Rather, hell has something to do with refusing to receive and to be transformed by the love of God. Okay. Father Richard Rohr, I think he's still alive, um, writes a lot on spiritual formation. But he said this, love is always torment for the hateful. So as another person put it, he said, you know, the love of God to the wicked and the evil will feel like torment. Remember the rich man, where the love of God will be blissful to those who show the fruit of their relationship with Jesus, yet God will be all in all. There was a rich man. Beloved, this is potentially all of us, one way or the other, okay? Watch this. We've all been recipients of the greatest gift ever. Not a lottery ticket or some distant relative who wrote me in their will that I'm still related to somewhere out in Holland. But the love of God revealed in Christ. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. See, the good news of Jesus' words today to us is that the kingdom is an open table of abundance, freely given to those who choose to surrender their hearts to the love of God and to one another. Amen? So I want to invite us this morning in response to a closing prayer and then to the table. Would you guys uh, stand with me and just join me in this prayer and then I'm going to Bring us to the table, those of you on the call. I'm going to invite you to join us as well if you have something there ready. Uh, we'll, we'll be here sharing communion in just a few moments. Let's pray this prayer together. Holy God, 
You reach out in love through Jesus Christ to save us so that we may live as faithful servants of you alone. Unchain us from our desire for wealth and power so that we may in turn release others from the prisons of poverty, hunger, and oppression. Amen and amen. You know, Pastor Luis this morning said, I want to show you something. And uh, he opened up his phone, and there's been another gathering this weekend, and we've been a part of it in El Salvador. That's, you know, just so grateful. So as we talk about these kinds of things, guys, I want you to know we're living in it together. I want to, uh, I want to lead us to the table in a liturgy. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Just This is a, a second volume of a book called Every Moment Holy. Uh, if you ever want to uh, pick up, just begin to look at some really, really good prayer liturgies. This one is on death, grief, and hope. That's volume two. But um, this is the liturgy of praise to Christ who conquered the death. And our response to this is, you have made all things well. Can we say that together? You have made all things well. Sing through me, O Spirit of God. Call for songs of praise. Let my lips, my tongue, my life proclaim the glories of the living one who died and conquered death, the risen one who leads me into life. You have made all things well, O Christ. We respond. You have, you have made all things well. We're, we'll get there. What was once lost, you have redeemed. What had been harmed, you will remake. What was unwell, you now restore. You make all things well. You swallowed death for us, and by that act of willing sacrifice, you pushed death back upon itself like the last lapping wave at the turn of tide, that high wave mark now fading as death's dominion ebbs out over all time, its power to terrorize God's people forever destroyed by God's own passage through it. Through death, O Lord, you gave us life. You have made all things well. You have made all things well. Death's dark shroud has been rent ragged and pierced through by the first dawning of your resurrection light. And after your return, after the splintering of the dark night, death will possess no lasting fame. No, the works of death uh, will win no glory for its name. Hear this promise, O children of God. Hear and know death will surely die forever. His shoddy works undone, his usurped crown torn from the, the palais grasp, his impotence unmasked, his power to harm shattered for all eternity like shards of thinnest glass. Receive the glory due to your name, Lord Jesus Christ. You have made all things well. Amen. All sorrows will endure for now, uh, but the rattling grasp that signals death's defeat. Christ's heel is planted on death's neck. Death cannot breathe. And this space in which we grieve is but a long exhale of death's last expiring breath. The age of passing sorrows is but a long death rattle of death itself. 
The outcome bears no hint of doubt. The work is done. The victory is won. So death will be undone. All works of death will be undone. All we whose lives are hid with Christ in God will rise to live eternal, everyone. You have made all things well, O Christ. So, Lord, as we come to this, your table, we proclaim this powerful reality. Lord, in the face of those things that are distorted, in the face of things that are, are uh, torn apart, we proclaim the power and the victory of the cross and the resurrection that you have restored and made whole and you have made all things well. So, Lord, this is our confession as we come to this, your table, by your invitation. Lord, we want to repent unto you and faith in Christ Jesus our Lord and unto you as we set forth into this day. And, Lord, that we would make eye contact with you and our neighbor and that we would proclaim that which is true. You've made all things well. So Lord, now as we receive this, your body and your blood given for us, we proclaim your life, your death, and your resurrection in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to come as you feel led. If you came